Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, everything has a history, even breakfast cereal. And that history is involved with the history of grain, which means it's involved with both the history of agriculture and urbanism, how humans mark time during the day, meal customs, which means it's also involved with the history of the family, nutrition and health, and all the ideas and fears involved with those terms. So that means it's involved with the history of science and, believe it or not, the history of religion and the history of political progressivism. And since the beginning of the 20th century, or maybe the late 19th century, breakfast cereal has been involved with marketing and mass culture. Breakfast cereal, it turns out, is connected to just about everything. With me to talk about her new book, Breakfast Cereal, A Global History, is Catherine Cornell Dolan. She is an associate professor in the Department of English and Technical Communication at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Previous books include Beyond the Fruited Plain and Cattle Country. You can find links to them in our show notes, as well as to Breakfast Cereal. Catherine Cornell Dolan, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. And please call me Casey, by the way. Okay, Casey, it is. So yeah. uh, the ancient history of porridge, there's a big, big backstory to breakfast cereal, which I did not anticipate when I picked up the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not anticipate how many links to other podcasts I would be putting in the show notes. <laughs> everything is connected. Because yeah. everything is connected. So let's talk about porridge. Yes. Um, just, I was just thinking that, um, well, can, can I, mean, I sing the song? Can no, sing don't sing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was thinking about John Arthur was on the podcast a couple of years ago. I talked about beer and it's ancient, sure. ancient history. And I realized, yeah. Oh my God, beer is kind of cold porridge allowed yeah. to ferment. Yeah. And porridge is just hot grain and they must predate bread. So the, what's, these go back to the beginning. They go back before harvested grain, I guess. Can you take it yeah, away? Yeah, yeah. And basically, we you couldn't ask people yet. I mean, I'm, there's theories, but which comes first, beer mm. or like a porridge? Like this is, you know, yeah, is, is the one, you know, was the one an accident in one way or was the other an accident? We're pretty sure that one was an accident, like a delightful accident. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, and then bread at some point if you wait for a while and it cooks for right. a the bread of that time would have been much more like a flat bread or, you know, a non-yeast, something very, um, or maybe something sourdoughy and fermented. And so not the kind of, not bread that we picture nowadays from the grocery store or something. Um, but yes. And if you think about it, so what makes us, you know, the Neolithic revolution, we're inventing, you know, we're working on agriculture in the way that we picture it, planting grains and, you know, having a, a more stable centered living in a town or a village kind of an existence instead of what we quote unquote think of as hunting, hunting and gathering. Um, you needed a tool. So you needed this one tool, you need a pot. So it kind of comes around because someone has to get a thing to, to gather these grains in and then, you know, let them cook for a while and then they can be processed and we can digest them easier. And all these things happen that, if you, you, you know, you, you couldn't just eat the plant, you had to do something to it before you could actually consume it. And so that is like a technological development that is a major 
point in, in the history of human civilization is being able to do that one thing. And if you, and then, and, and we've probably all heard stories about, and then you have the grains and they're sitting in a container. And so then cats come about because then there's the rodents and, you know, all these things. And so we're sitting in one place and all of this happens kind of in the same period. Um, so if you, like, before that, what was happening? And before that, we didn't even have breakfast because you couldn't, and, and this was something fascinating to me as I was doing the research because I, I didn't realize that Porridge was going to be the first chapter of this book either. I thought I was going to start with Kellogg, you know, and it was all going to start there ready to eat. And then all of a sudden it was like, but what happened before that? Um, and if you think about it, up until you have the ability to store things, the the ceramics, the, the containers, all of that kind of stuff to actually contain the grains, to secure them, to keep them from getting eaten by other animals over the course of a period of time. You know, you're not having a person protect them or something. Before that, you can't have a food that you're going to eat right after you wake up because how would that have happened? You know, so you had to have a food after you acquired the food you know you had to either gather it or hunt it or prepare you know do something so you wouldn't really eat until closer to midday you know after you're doing all of your acquiring of the items that you're going to be eating and then preparing it and then you would eat and so there was really just like a one main meal of the day that maybe you would have some nibbling you know later on the, in the day as well but yeah so even the concept of breakfast as a meal and the petit déjeuner and however we're saying it in whichever language um, that has to happen after several technological developments. <laughs> I, I had no idea how late the word breakfast actually is. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it 16th century. I mean, you're the English professor. So it's like it, the, the actual innovation of it in the OED is not until 1550-ish, something like yeah. that. Break yeah, fast. It sounds, it sounds so authentic and ye olde English. Right, right. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's not. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's contemporary with Shakespeare. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a neologism of the Elizabethan age, which well, like a lot of things that we say are, but, right, um, right. Go Shakespeare. <laughs> but the, uh, but we should say that if there is a harvested grain in the world, someone has necessarily made <laughs> porridge from it. And there is a porridge recipe to go with it. It's not just oatmeal. Yeah. Um, oh no, no, no. Yeah. It's it, depending on where you were and, and. You know, the if you were in Asia, it was rice. If you were in Africa, it was also rice, I believe. Um, if you were in Amer the Americas, it was corn. Uh, there was millet. There was bulgur. There was, you know, you yeah, you name it. There were um, some, you know, some lent uh, lentils, different legumes as well would be made into porridge. Um, and the word actually starts out as potage, and again, pot connected to, to pot and that kind of becomes the word that we know of as porridge and um so if you think about it that goes oh, back did, to jacob and Esau. yeah so that pot pottage it's the thing that mm -hmm. we do in the pot wow. yeah yeah that's that's yeah. pretty yeah. that's pretty that's literally <laughs> radical that's at the root of yeah. existence yeah uh. yeah yeah exactly and and so someone will have to write a material studies book about the ceramic pots yeah. <laughs> like how we well, i'm sure it's done i mean it's probably yeah, right. as, probably as exciting as a pot I mean, as a, as well, I'm, I, I know that uh, Amelia, I'm going to get letters now, emails and people find pots <laughs> exciting, but it's, I was just thinking of how boring it would be, but yeah, I'm sure it'll be fascinating and it'll probably be on the podcast. So um, there's this uh, tremendous variety of, so, so at some point, and this gets back to, um, I should have looked this up, and I, but I didn't put this in my notes. There's the fantastic book, More Work for Mother 
uh, I think written in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, which chronicles the way in which labor-saving devices create more work. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and the point, and, and a, a huge shift is in the early 19th century, um, when we go from uh, just an open fire cooking to mm-hmm. having easier to use bake ovens and how that changes everything. Cause all of a sudden you have to start baking and it takes more time and you're making more, you know, blah, blah, blah. Before that, mm-hmm. there's just, most people are eating a porridge of some kind or a stew, right, right. porridge yep, and yep. stews something and, in a pot. and something yep. boiled over the open fire are, are things. Yeah. So really the breakfast cereal comes, I was thinking comes really relatively quickly after the development of what we think of as a 19th century sort of farm kitchen oven. Mm-hmm. It'd be fancy, but an enclosed oven with the sort of hobs on top with a bake oven inside. Breakfast cereal comes right after that sort of introduction of that technology, which mm-hmm. is maybe not an accident, but let's talk about the transformation of porridge into breakfast cereal. And this is a very, <laughs> it's, a, it's a quite a chain of events. And yeah. oddly enough, I just talked about the Graham diet at Oberlin College. <laughs> Uh, and that it, is amazing. Yeah. And it just can't, comes up again. So we should probably talk about Dr. Sylvester Graham. Sure. Uh, for whom the most awful thing in the world will be a s'more. <laughs> I know, I know. The thing he's still known for is like yeah. he would shudder. Like he would just, let's take something and put a lot of sugar in it and make it real sweet. I'm <laughs> very processed. So, he's like, so, what? No. So briefly, he he is in many ways the the, the lineal father of breakfast cereal. So we should explain his, sure. his, yep, yep. his views and how they're taken up in American culture. Yeah. So he, yeah, he is a food reformer, a lot of kind of things reformer, uh, but his food work is to bring in whole grains and make everything be very unprocessed and very um, healthy. And it, it actually sounds quite modern. You know, you could see this in a, in a store today, like whole grains in there. Um, and there were lots of other, and vegetarian, um, and he would have these communities where you would live together with other Grahamites, and um, he gets written about by, like, Henry David Thoreau will mention him in Walden, and, um, you know, different people at the time that are progressive thinkers are engaging with Graham and either trying his diet and his lifestyle and his you know, suggestions and stuff, or critiquing them and saying that, you know, that's goofy looking. And so again, much like you would do with some sort of a fad diet of today or something like that. Um, Zorro, I don't know if you know, he says, I'd rather, oh, how does it, I'd rather board in hell than in a cram community or something like that. <laughs> well, speaking of boarding in hell. <laughs> it, the sanitarium. It, yeah. In many ways, the Graham community is, it, it, it sinks together beautifully with the European tradition of the sanitarium. Yeah. Yep, yep. So they're what we're going to create sanitariums. We're going to create them. We've got this tradition, certainly in in gosh, in the Virginia of the the hot springs resorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are very you can drink terrible things from the magnesium. <laughs> probably good for like you. The magnesium <laughs> spring, ooh, the sulfur spring. Have a little, you know, I, you know, highly uh, sulfurous water. It will set you right. It will balance your humors or something. But then we can also add then the Graham communities to that. We've got that mm-hmm. the, the health sanitarium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so it was interesting for me to as I was doing the work, the research. Uh, thinking about how these are coming about, these sanitariums. So they're not, yeah, as you say, Virginia, upstate New York, and then the, the Kellogg one will end up in Michigan, and um, and then of course the Post, <laughs> like his follow up one. Um, but the idea of 
So with the new oven and with the Industrial Revolution and with these technologies that are happening in the early 19th century, people are able to acquire, eat more calories more quickly, uh, specifically meat calories, and stuff is just kind of easier for people in some ways. But then what happens is, or at least what is the sanitarium culture comes about following, is that there's all these GI ailments and people just end up having lots of issues with their digestion and with their overall health. And so there becomes this, or at least they perceive this, they, they believe that they have this. Um, and so, yeah, so there becomes this real market for health communities, health spas um, that you go to these sanitariums and they would involve exercise, diet, drinking, usually, oh, and have you had a, a one of these podcasts about the water cure yet? So next, I've written about the water cure too. So if you ever want to, another well, <laughs> fascinating. I'm just thinking in American Victorian literature that it seems there's an, <laughs> a, or in English there's a, 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 a irregular number of people very concerned about their duodenal tract. Yeah, or, yes, and, and yes. Drink, and drinking glasses of warm milk and things like that. And you, and this yeah. is this is all part of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and yes, and the the water cure was part of that. And you would take like a bunch of showers or baths during the day. You would drink lots of water. You would uh, cover yourself in blankets to make yourself sweat, and that would like you know release the toxins. Mark Twain writes about the water cure in one of his books. Yeah, um, I, I shuddered yeah. when I read that in your book. It was sounded it, it sounded <laughs> right. like an awful, awful time. Um, it, but it's all for health, right? It's yeah. all, you know, you're going to get better from this. And it's like, I was, that's what we were concerned about it. What that was going on in Guantanamo, as far as I was concerned, <laughs> this, is what, this is what waterboarding was like. So <laughs> this brings us then to a religion, which is, uh, this brings us to the seventh day Adventists. Seventh day Adventists. So yeah. The seven, yeah. how, how do they get involved in this, in this story? Sure. So um, Ellen G. White, who is a phenomenal figure historically. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She needs a podcast for herself. I I will not do her justice today. Um, But there's, well, I'll dial it back actually real quick. Um, So it's um, Jackson, uh, Mm -hmm. Jacob Caleb Jackson is the one that invents this product called Granula. And he has it in this Danville spa up in upstate New York. And, um, and Jackson is, takes on is this you know she creates a religion she's one of the elders for this whole religion with her partner her husband and um one of the followers in her religion is the kellogg family so is john harvey kellogg and she really takes john harvey under her wing and puts him through medical school puts him through all his education and then afterwards with the the goal in mind that she will um he'll take over with some of the her own health spa work and and with the Seventh Day Adventist theme and eating Seventh Day Adventist, so therefore vegetarian. So that's um, we should say that Seventh Day Adventist mm-hmm. very early on took on what they saw as most reviving various uh, mosaic practices, which they believed the Christian Church had erroneously dropped. And right. As, but rather than going kosher, they went vegetarian. Um, so it turns out mosaic practices were often for the them for her meant. The what the latest progressive science ideas of the 19th century were were synonymous right, with, right. but <laughs> le- that leaving that aside, um, they. Although she, we do yeah. have to, sorry, yeah. we we should give her that one last shout out that you know Loma Linda, California is one of the blue zones. And yes, so, like, it is. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> also, I, I do notice that I, a lot of the blue zones tend to be islands. We'll put a link to them. Uh, but they, right. they, they, Loma Linda is the one that's not actually very isolated. Um, 
so so they so she's she is on the prowl to find out like best practices and she ends up at Jackson sanitarium and they basically, so, and, and Jackson's he's making this stuff, which is, as you described, highly unappetizing, <laughs> highly terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it has to like soak for a while in order to be like edible. Um, so it's twice baked. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, a whole grain, like a brand, I think his was wheat and it was twice baked and um, then like in a big wafer. So again, using this technology of the new ovens the new and ovens, everything. Yeah. Um, and then it broken into nuggets, but yes, completely unpalatable. So yeah, <laughs> just soak overnight. Well, we'll get we'll get to Weetabix later, which seems to me it's it's, it's lineal descendant in so many ways. Or grape nuts, or yeah. Uh, Weetabix has a special a special place in my hall of fame of terrible cereals. Um, okay. So they they go back. Ellen White and John Harvey Kellogg go back to uh, Battle Creek, and John Harvey Kellogg is a He's a, there are some fantastic characters in this book, uh, yes. but it is not too much to say that he towers over the everyone else as the most eccentric and interesting of them. Even Ellen White, at least, I mean, I'm sure she is actually more interesting than he, but, but in this book, eccentric or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a guy, well, I find a picture of him and put in the show notes, um, Harlan Sanders obviously modeled his look on John Harvey, mm-hmm. Harvey Kellogg in, in many ways. <laughs> it is a very similar look. It's a yeah. very similar look. If you think of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so describe. And the white suit so that he could clean himself. He could see if any dirt got on it. It was yeah. very easy to, yeah. So so he, there's, yeah. there's that. It's the impresario. It's the showman. Yeah. It's the big Van Dyke beard. Yeah. It's the, you know, all yeah. the rest of that stuff. So he's got some ideas about nutrition. Uh, yes. like, like his contemporary Harvey Wiley, all of them are wrong. Just about all of them. I mean, they they try. Like, I think at the very end, yeah, I say this is like radically wrong for what we know now. But like, but they were well, trying. It's interesting. Sylvester Graham was much more right about these things than Kellogg was. But we, but it's important to describe some of Kellogg's ideas because that's what leads to breakfast cereal. Absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, so one of his most wrong ideas is that other than some of the politics and stuff, but dietarily, so one of his most wrong ideas is uh, that he thinks that food should be pre-digested before you eat it. And he calls it pre-digested. And so we would call that processed. And now, of course, everyone is like, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. And that's, you know, a sure way to lead to the obesity epidemic in the US right now and all, you know, all these kind of things. But he, to give him credit, um, was trying to... He was getting people with these ailments of having really bad stomach pains and and digestive issues and stuff. So he was like, if they could have a very, and of course, he wasn't going to be giving them any sugar or any of the things that we are scolding people about the processed diet. So his was a very processed diet, but in a whole grain bran water, you know, very easy to digest kind of foods, like very safe for you kind of foods. And so, um, yeah, so he was... Oh, and can I talk about, let's see, is this a good time for me to talk about the granola? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, he creates, uh, he goes to Jackson's Spa and with White and, and they, they see, they eat his granola. And so then they try and make their own, uh, somehow they somehow masticate it enough. Oh, gosh, we could talk about the mastication as well. But, and, um, and so he brings it back to, to the sanitarium in Battle Creek. And makes one himself, twice baked. Um, it doesn't have to be soaked overnight. It's a little bit better. It's a little bit crispier. Um, but it is close enough in 
in, in ingredients and the way that they make it and everything that Jackson finds out about it and threatens litigation <laughs> because he's calling it the same thing. So they drop the U and they change it to granola. That's how, that's where granola comes from. <laughs> I bet you didn't think that when you bought it at the grocery store last time. Yeah, I'm not sure what patent lawyers would do with that. I don't think that would help these days. Um, no, no. But Kellogg, I swear to Pete, half of the patent lawyers were working with Kellogg in some ways. It's really true. I mean, we, we, we've had a, have to link to an earlier conversation about copyright law and, and whiskey, which is hugely important uh, to the FDA yes, and copyright. But the people yeah. who aren't working, the people who aren't working on whiskey are working on cereal. Uh, and it's the same kind of for marketing. If they're not marketing liquor, they're marketing breakfast cereal. But could you talk oh, yeah. about mastication? Which is, I apologize if you're if you're currently eating, please shut the podcast off and take it up later. And uh, sadly, I am forgetting the name of. It's not Fourier. Um, are you remembering the no, name? No, I'm of not. The, I don't have it in my um, notes. Yeah, yeah, it can be looked up easy. Um, and he and a lot of these spas followed this particular practitioner's practice that um, to you had to chew your food for a minute or the, during the process of singing a song or 30 or 60 times or so that this is, you know, before you could swallow. And so then again, to help, you know, this food was supposed to be like already digested by the time it even hit your stomach. And so you would, and there was this silly little song that got spoofed a lot, of course, and these all became satirized, you know, like in the, um, in in road to wellville or something like that you know he's become very satirized but yeah and you would sit there and you would you would properly chew all your food until it was just like utterly mush and just and then suck it in uh and then or, just suck it down. yeah down, down it goes uh so let that be a lesson to you so then so john harvey has a kid brother 10 years younger wk jh yeah. kellogg yeah. wk kellogg and yeah. he's the sort of that that kid brother that we all worry about uh, Except he was lovely. It turns he out. was, it, <laughs> but he took the cereal. He WK comes along and says, "JH, you know, I can take this cereal breakfast cereal places." So, what mm -hmm. does he do to create breakfast cereal as we know it? Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because so John Harvey has it set up in a very Jackson esque kind of way, and it's you're eating it at the spa, and there is an actual company where you can buy the boxed cereal brand uh, to take home, but it's really expensive. And pretty much the only people that are going to be wanting to buy that are people that have actually been to the spa. And, there, yeah. There's an interesting comparison here between, say, colas and breakfast cereal, which are happening at the same time, which mm -hmm. are both mm -hmm. of them have, at their genesis, a medicinal application. Mm -hmm. right. 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 I mean, it's mm -hmm. people talk about cocaine and, and Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. Sure. But there are lots of other ones, you know, like 7-Up uh, mm -hmm. is lithium phosphate. I mean, it's supposed to, it's supposed, they're all, they're all good for you. They're, right. they're all tonics from the drug that you get at the drugstore mixed by a pharmacist. And here, this is health food made by a doctor, a, a, a yes. nutritionist, and they're going to be yeah. good for you. So there's, and both of them, when they go native, when they go wild, when they wander out of the corral. <laughs> no more health. <laughs> oh, no. And they also both create modern marketing. That yeah. soap, yes. I guess. Yes. But, and there's, there is a whole chapter on, you know, once you start putting stuff in boxes, once there's a move, and to some extent, this is when we go out of villages and are getting more urbanized, or, you know, you don't, there's a little bit less trust for just, you know, you can't just go to the corner store and buy your bulk 
whatever and get it in a bag and take it home. You know, things are packaged. And once that happens, once a thing can be packaged, then it can be marketed, then it needs to justify itself. So then there's mascots get invented at the same, you know, so this yeah. is all happening. Once that have those all come together, quicker, let's wait, you know, let's wait on, you know. let's wait on, well, yeah, 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 let's wait on the mascots. Well, so, WK though, he said, he's, WK, the, yeah. he's the one that drags breakfast cereal out of this health food corral yeah, at yeah. Battle and Creek into the, and into yeah. the mass market. So what does he do to do that? Yeah. So, uh, so in much the same way that John Harvey and Ellen White had um, gone to the Jacksonville Jackson Spa and uh, not the Jacksonville Spa, that's a different spa, but the Jackson Spa in Danville um, and brought back granola uh, post, CW post, lots of initials, lots of initials in this, um, goes to the Battle Creek Sanitarium of the Kellogg's. And he has terrible health problems and he goes there and he feels a lot better. And so his first concern, and I know you're like, I asked you about WK and why are you telling me? But CW Post is why WK does what he does. Um, and, and the first impulse he had, and of course, John Harvey Kellogg had kept, everything was very open and he did tours through the experimental kitchen. So you could go, all the visitors of the sanitarium and all the clients could come through and see how they're wonderful foods are being made and how, you know, the latest in technology and the latest in scientific, you know, research and stuff is being used to make them better, right. To, to help their health. And w, so WK, the first thing he does after he starts to feel better is he was like, how can I steal? CW, CW. Yeah, sorry, sorry. You're right. CW. And, and he goes from, as you say, invalid to millionaire in seven years. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. I mean, because, it's, it's a really yeah. sad story. I mean, he does make yeah. a, a huge amount of money, but he commits suicide. I didn't realize this. Yeah. Yeah. Because the pain does not, his, his health is still so bad. It goes up and yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. And he also gets to, in, you know, bring in other famous names. He works, he gets surgery from the Mayo brothers, you yeah. know, so the right. famous Mayo clinic, one of their first, you know, earliest patients. Um, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And he's in so much pain. He does. He ends up killing himself quite young. Um, and Yes, but so when so he, when he takes off, when he creates grape nuts, right, and he steals the the patent to the flakes first before grape nuts, mm -hmm. and they sue him and everything. But it's it, there's so many suits. He also sues, um, oh gosh, what's his name, Perky, uh, for the shredded wheat patent. But that's you know, and the and the judges come back and say it's too different, and you can't patent just the concept of cereal and stuff at that point. And, um, so so there's lots of lawsuits, but he tries, and then. CW, no, WK, sorry, <laughs> now I'm all confused with my initials. So WK goes up to John Harvey and is saying, we have to strike back. We can't just keep these in these little boxes that only people from the health spa are buying. We have to actually market this because he's taking all of our money. We did the work and he, you know, just took it. And he even set up a spa across the street from the Battle Creek Sanitarium. I don't that know is, if you know that, that but like. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is cold. Yeah, it was, <laughs> La Vida Inn was his. and. Um, so yeah, so he's like, we have to do something. And and they fought and the brothers sued themselves a billion times as well, John Harvey, because um, at one point, uh, WK uh, finally just said, yes, we're starting a company. And then they fought over how much sugar to add to their cereal. Mm -hmm. John Harvey saying none and Will Keith saying, well, there better be some because no one's going to buy it otherwise. Like this will never, you know, we can talk to a couple of people that were feeling really bad and now feel good and have this association with us as like making their health better. So they'll, they'll eat whatever we tell them, you know, but mm -hmm. you know, you can't just stick it on the store and, and expect someone to like voluntarily buy it without. Uh, so he wins and they put in a lot of sugar, not as much as today, actually. And for them, a lot is actually a very different amount than our a lot. Our a lot is a lot more um horrifyingly <laughs> um 
And, and for anyone that is curious, what he does is, and he's, it's, so this is Will Keith, WK. Um, he absolutely is going after Post. Post is like his nemesis. John Harvey also becomes a nemesis, but CW Post is definitely the nemesis. So if you ever notice that the Kellogg's boxes are signed, like one of their logos is a signature. And that's yeah. because, and in the beginning, he signed each box because theirs was the legitimate one. Theirs was the pure, the true, oh, the, true. everyone else's was an imitator. And so he, like, as a way to, to prove that this was the true health, you know, cornflakes, this is the one that you really meant to buy, you know. So, and the, the concept of the signature is still at their logo. As you said, WK turns out to be a real sweetheart. Uh, he is. He, he yeah. forms the Kellogg Foundation. I always associate mm -hmm. the, the Kellogg Foundation, well, I guess with John Harvey, vaguely, but I, I yeah. didn't realize they were brothers. And, and he starts the Kellogg Foundation very, very early. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, almost immediately. And he does uh, many, many other, you know, he, he, is a, he is a master philanthropist as well as entrepreneur. Yeah, so he makes a gajillion dollars in his time dollars, and uh, and then, but but he really was like from all accounts like as good to his employees as he could be, and you know gave to charities and and created foundations, and he was of course their company was happening right during the Great Depression, and so he found ways to keep people employed and rotate shifts and stuff so that people didn't have to lose their jobs working for him, and um, you know he set up daycare and parks, you know, for kids to play in and stuff around, you know, in the, in where his factories were. And um, so, yeah, he did a lot of good. And it's just so funny because if you were to think of it in terms of John Harvey versus Will Keith, Keith Will, you know, WK is the problematic brother and the one that just doesn't follow along in line with what John Harvey wants to have happen. But, and, and like, even back when he was, John Harvey's right-hand man at the sanitarium and was, you know, dealing with all the accounts and all the stuff that John Harvey didn't think was worth his notice. You know, he was just interested in the science and the coming up with brilliant ideas and stuff. But then there was the whole running of the place that had to happen. And that was largely Will Keith. And, um, but he would find ways to get scholarships for people that couldn't afford it because it's very expensive. And usually it was rich people that would go there. You know, you hear about Taft and, um, you know, uh, the list of Ford clients and, is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that they have. I mean, it's any all the great and good uh, yeah. who've had problems with sleeping or their digestion, which I guess is all of them. Right, um, right. <laughs> seem to have come to battle the Battle Creek Sanitarium at some point. So, yeah. CW Post really initiates this this avalanche, and I was stunned mm -hmm. to your claim that the the rapid globalization of yeah. breakfast cereal, such that in Australia and Britain, there's a greater per capita consumption of breakfast cereal prior to a, it's greater than America's. Uh, please. Yeah. Expand. And that was like, mid, that's even mid 20th century. I think if I'm remembering right. Um, yeah. They just, it's almost the minute they have ships. One of the things they put on the ships is boxes of cereal and they send them to South Africa, to the UK. They start setting up factories. The biggest factory for, Kellogg isn't in the U.S. It's in England. Um, uh, Ted Tedfield, I believe, is the town in England. Um, yeah, and it just and they they take off now. In part, actually, this goes back to Ellen White. She goes from Loma Linda to Australia and starts another sanitarium for the Seventh Day Adventists down there. And that's one of the ways they get um, really involved in the breakfast cereal movement as well. And that's very early. I think that's still. 
early 20th century. It's not late 19th century, but it's early 20th century that that's happening. They're a sanitarium health food company. Um, and that's who invents weed fix. Like, so that's where that comes from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's um, your favorite. <laughs> well, I just like to uh, anyone who knows Weedabix, my um, my favorite cricket uh, player, uh, Jack Russell of Gloucestershire. He's a wicket keeper, very famous wicket keeper. Uh, just to give you an idea, of he how crazy he is. He would soak his Weedabix for a timed fifteen minutes before eating them. Which means uh, basically perfect. <laughs> well, basically means he could have used a straw if he wished to. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> but that's delicious milk at that point. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Uh, so let's and talk. I don't, I don't know if everyone knows. Weetbix and Weetabix are the same. Yes. They're Weetbix in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and they're Weetabix in England. And there's reasons for that, but they're boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a strange sort of yeah, you know, colonial uh, nationalism, <laughs> proto nationalism, I guess at the time. <laughs> So, um, breakfast cereals, the arguments about nutrition yes. are right, go right along with breakfast cereal to the present moment. From the beginning. It, it yeah. begins, it's, it's Genesis is in there. Uh, I think that the, the growing up in the, as a, a kid in the seventies, you're used to the endless commercials, part of a balanced and nutritious <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there would be a picture. So what, what, what I'm gathering from your book is that, of course, this whole idea of a balanced, nutritious breakfast is one of three meals a day is a mm-hmm. mid 20th century phenomenon in America. Um, sure. Because uh, I, there are plenty of people who were in their 40s when I was in the in the 70s who would tell me, "Oh yeah, dinner, what you call With lunch, midday. is the yeah, is yeah. the big thing." If you're in, if, mm-hmm. if you're farming, you can understand why, because mm-hmm. um, you're extremely hungry by noon if you've been. And you're not since so five. hungry at 7 p.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we didn't, they didn't use the term lunch. There was, it was breakfast, mm-hmm. dinner, supper, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But by the seventies and the eighties, we've got this idea of this nutritious breakfast and people would make fun of it that, uh, that, that that's the sugary cereals nutritious, but mm-hmm. it turns out they had been putting vitamins into it. So yeah. this is the part of a, the whole vitamin craze comes into this, you know? So yes. could you briefly explain, you know, sir, how that happens? And then why was sugar added as a health measure? Because I resonate with this. Go on. <laughs> that was, so, yeah. And um, so Funk in Germany comes up with this term vitamin, vitamin. And there's actually... Um, like in 1906, uh, 1907, it's really, mm-hmm. I hadn't realized how recent it was. Relatively speaking. And is his name Suzuki? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In um, Japan, comes up with it at the same time. Now, he doesn't, he's not the famous one, so we don't know his name for vitamin because, and Pork has, I mean, for Funk wouldn't have read his stuff because it wasn't translated yet, but he does predate uh, the German. And, um, and they come up with this idea that, so people had, you know, uh, diseases like beriberi. Uh, and if you have what we now call B12, uh, it turns out that you're not going to get these various diseases and these, you know, these these mm-hmm. chronic illnesses and stuff. And so, um, so that's what comes up with this concept of vitamins, and then the associated concept of minerals, and the fact that these can be isolated and then added into foods. And um, so, I, people keep thinking about like um, functional foods nowadays. It's such a big term, and people think about, you know, but. I need this many chemicals and this many proteins and this many, this isn't, but it, it goes back to this time. You know, people are thinking, well, here's, we're going to put in this many of this is and this many uh, vitamin C's, vitamin D's. If you have some milk for protein, if you have these other elements, then yes, that becomes um, a very healthy breakfast actually. And it 
they give breakfast cereal credit for curing childhood ailments like rickets and things like that, um, that because of the various vitamins that had been put in the milk and the cereal, uh, if you ate those, you would, and made sure to have enough protein and calcium and all those other things, and calcium being one of the minerals. I mean, I, um, I, I've always thought of the civil rights movement and air conditioning changing the South, but of course, mm-hmm. it was also breakfast cereal. Yeah, uh, because that those, that's that's where they were. That's where those those sorts of diseases, well, the mm-hmm. nutritional deficiencies were were concentrated. And I imagine there's something to it as well, as you point out. There there has to be something also with more women working. Uh, in in the First World War and the Second World War, um, you can leave the house or you can quickly put milk and cereal together for your children. Because I mean, it's the First World War. There's plenty of cereal around. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's getting and, sent with. The, the soldiers and stuff. It's exactly. Yeah. So, um, so that also has something to do with it. So we've also got the whole modern, the cult of convenience. I mean, mm-hmm. it, yeah. al- it almost anticipates that it's almost prior or, to the cult of convenience. Or maybe creates it. it creates yeah. It. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, why can't it be as convenient as breakfast cereal? Cause that has to be the most earliest, most convenient thing that I can think of other than oh, eating definitely. an apple. But somehow that doesn't count. <laughs> apples are delicious, but yeah, that's just way too natural. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to buy anything from anyone for that. <laughs> so, so you, you we've referenced sugar because of course that that was always yep. that that's been the I'll have to use this academic term that's been the discourse about breakfast cereal for some right. time for almost the whole time ever yeah. since WK and JH were hamming it out hashing but it out. Growing um, up, uh, my mother as a public health nurse regarded sugary cereals like. Uh, she would probably crack cocaine. Uh, yeah, right, right. And she was not going to introduce that stuff into her household. Oh. So oh. we had shredded Were you wheat. you Cheerios boy? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Cheerios <laughs> and grape nuts, yeah. which my father used to make combine all together. Sure, sure. Into an artistic, you know, melange. Oh, uh, I, I, I mix them up constantly. That's I, just, <laughs> I just went with lots of sugar, you know, as when no one was looking. And right. it turns out that that was, it was me that they were after, at least initially. Therefore, that, you were the problem. I was the problem. <laughs> yeah. So they started yeah. putting sugar in the cereal because of kids like me who were like dumping the entire, the, you know, <laughs> bowl in, you know. Yeah. So the the concept of the frosted flakes, the frosted cereals was a way to regulate how much sugar was put in the cereals without the kids with the with the bowl of sugar in front of them and just putting as many spoons as they wanted instead this was like a way to you know kind of contain the num- the amount of sugar again the trick is how high of a number are we using for this containment and does the kids still have the bowl of sugar even with the frosted flakes <laughs> they did they obviously hadn't thought ahead to my wife who is a child would <laughs> add the sugar to the frosted flakes I right, right exactly <laughs> um, <laughs> so frosted flakes Tony the Tiger, they're great. Mm-hmm. Tony they the Tiger, are. 1951, 1952, I find out from you, but not far, far, far from being the earliest mascot. Yeah, for or, sure. Or catchphrase. Right, right, right. Yeah, the Wheaties, the Breakfast of Champions was a really early one with, uh, you know, billboards in um, baseball venues in uh, up in Minnesota. Minnesota, I believe. And um, the general, because General Mills. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Yes, the earliest ones are um, some Snap Crackle Pop is one of the earliest. Is that one the earliest? No, Mickey Mouse. it's Sunny Jim. So okay, it is Sunny Jim. I was like, is which I Jim? was like, I um, which I only knew as a catchphrase in Britain. You yeah, know, right, right. Nice to see it's you, Sunny yeah. Jim. You know, he's a real Sunny Jim. I, I yeah. had no idea. I just thought that was just like a cheerful guy. I had no idea that was a, <laughs> that was a marketing character for cereal. 
uh, he is uh, cheerful because he no longer has a st- sore stomach because he, he eats four eats. cereal. <laughs> and so, so Sunny Jim, uh, Breakfast of Champions. These are these. It's interesting you know, talking about mass culture. How these mm-hmm. became. I mean, it used to be a big deal that Mark Spitz, after getting his five Olympic gold yeah. medal, Eric Hayden, yeah. the speed skater in 1980, they're going to be on the Wheaties box. I mean, yeah. you didn't even eat Wheaties. And you thought that Wheaties. was a big thing. They're going to be the yeah. face of Wheaties, you know? I mean, th- these became, th- these had a cultural power. Uh, and it, you realize because they had so much space in the in the grocery aisle, they are bill- mm-hmm. they are themselves right. billboards. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And I don't know if you remember, but people wouldn't even eat the box. They keep the box, right? Because it'd become a collectible and everything. Exactly. Well, you also talk about, I mean, in the 70s, we had the cool toys inside. Yes. Um, yes. That so was speaking a, of collectibles. That was, yeah, spec- yeah. that was a big deal to get to the, mm-hmm. bottom of the, bo- the bottom of the box. And also, as you point out, the gradual fade off of the puzzles and games on the back of the box that you mm-hmm. used to be able to read and try to figure out while you were eating your Rice Krispies or what have but you. But now everyone has cell phones in front of them. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although there are retro there are a couple of retro companies that do try and have like more 80s style boxes of cereal. Like there was one, the Funko Pop toy. You could get a cereal box toy su- surprise. So instead of a toy in your cereal box, you got a cereal box with your toy. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's a fun little twist on that. But yeah, it's all the various technologies. And as they can make things out of plastic easier and stuff, what gets put in? Because it starts out on the box. It starts out with to back with, um, am I, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. Yeah, no, okay. Um, you know, you start out with the Quaker on the oatmeal box yeah. and that's, you know, oh, we trust that guy. He must be Benjamin Franklin, so he must be good. <laughs> and, um, and just, yeah, like you say, a billboard just, and then there's whatever is space that they could use to tell you nice things about the cereal. And Post was the master of this. He could stick information and, and surveys and quasi-scientific looking things or, there were these little booklets he put in post cereal that was how he got healthy because he ate it and you know all these kind of and then there were recipe books ways that you could use these in dinners or uh so obviously how to prepare oatmeal but then also you know how to make oatmeal bars or how to make oatmeal cookies or rice oatmeal crispy, casserole rice crispy or, treats eventually rice crispy treats exactly exactly yes yeah, so we have to learn how to do the we have to do the exploding pops first right? Right. that was the um, puff gun the invention of the puff yeah, gun yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. technological okay. race I, I once again i had no idea that's like 1902 yeah. the, yeah, the puff so early. it's very yeah. early but cw post i mean this is back to the the, mar- the marketing mm-hmm. stuff he, yeah, yeah. he was spending what like half of his budget on marketing yeah yeah and he had to he had to explain it he had to sell that to people and explain that that was a worthy co- uh expenditure because people fought him on that they were like this is an insane amount of money and he's like no no let's just do it and he got it all back it was like <laughs> he was absolutely correct like he, he then made like tenfold you know so it was um and and it's never stopped post and then everyone had to keep up with post so post was like the marketer of the year from different magazines and and organizations and stuff and he he just this is what what he really did um grape nuts of course is a thing and he he came up with grape nuts and we all i actually like grape nuts I, they're really good on top of ice cream which is probably not how you imagine well there is a there's a great a, a great yankee specialty of grape nuts pudding which is right, very right, very right. similar to Indian pudding in a way in which they also like or used to like. So it's a yeah. and grape nuts ice cream. Grape nuts ice cream is a thing up in you know up in New England. 
right, uh, right, so right. It's uh, interesting how those two things kind of still run side by side. The corn pudding for dessert now, but you know, also, also the grape nuts, uh, grape nuts pudding. Um, yes, and um, did you? Yeah, I, I love it. Made from neither grapes nor nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's got the most random name. <laughs> so he he thought. Um, he used grape sugar, some maltose. He used maltose as his sugar, and he and then he thought it had a nutty flavor, and so that's it where does. the name comes from. It does, it does. Yes. Um, so, so this is uh, so as I said, this is very much like what Coca Cola will pick up simultaneously. Maybe from who, yeah, yeah. who knows who's influencing who, and 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 off to the races. Twentieth century marketing. Here we come. Um, yes. Breakfast cereal in the arts. As an English mm-hmm. professor, you had to make a connection to the. The high, both the low and the high culture. Um, it's, it's, it's part of your job description. I was, <laughs> you point out to me, of course, how many dystopian societies from um, Soylent Green to the Matrix, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the grim reality of the dystopian future is everyone's eating something like cream of wheat, but less interesting. Porridge, yeah. <laughs> We're back to porridge. I just, yeah, I find it funny. That everyone... <laughs> it is, it is interesting. But what are some, what are some other connections? Uh, how breakfast cereals infiltrated all areas of culture? Sure. Well, I mean, you don't have to go any farther back than um, three bears, right? <laughs> like someone smelling whiteboard. Yeah. You know, and of course, that story was not Goldilocks was a later edition. It started out the little old lady, <laughs> but we uh, it, it got taken over. Eventually, got rewritten with a with a little girl, and everyone liked it better for some reason that way. Um, yeah, and and so that's a you know a super classic British fairy tale that everyone just knows now uh if you ever think about like pop art you always think andy warhol of mm-hmm, course mm-hmm. and this is actually i can talk about him but i i couldn't use the the actual images in the book sadly and um because you know <laughs> copyright and all but it's his he has a series just like the campbell soup cans that is um i think it's kellogg's kellogg cereal boxes and so and it's just like a whole bunch of them stacked up and it's a commentary on modern society and product and you know mass marketing and, and everything. And it's it's so interesting because to me that the Campbell soup can these re, you know repeated images and the idea that the re- repetition and the commonality and the fact that it's ubiquitous and everything is the point of the art. Um, and he's doing the exact same thing with Heinz soup and um, no, Heinz Heinz ketchup Heinz mm-hmm. soup and um, and then the Kellogg cereal boxes as well. So they're you know making its way into pop art. Um, and then the sky's the limit. Like people are doing all kinds of interesting stuff nowadays with, um, cereal boxes. Someone is as an art installation up in Canada as a first nations, he made a canoe out of cereal boxes and then canoed across a river. Um, people have made, you know, spray painted with the, the cereal box as the medium, you know, and then the art is done on top of it as like a mixed media kind of art. Um, very, contemporary very you know to some extent to some extent kind of like outsider art or something mm-hmm. using cereal box you know using found items and cereal boxes as found items for art in that way and then the i always find it interesting sometimes there's this overlap with at what point is it marketing and at what point is it art you know and if if someone's you know setting uh so it's a marketing thing for honda and they have a honda coming out of a big box of cereal or something, but it's so clever. Like I don't know. There's an artistic element to it too. And I think that's a very clever idea to have like a Honda Civic coming right out of the box. And then mm-hmm, go ahead. the um, 
maybe this is uh, maybe this is an example of uh, what Jacques Barzun referred to as as technically speaking as decadent culture that's unable right, it's right. Una- unable to come up with new ideas so it keeps on recycling other ones. But yeah, yeah. it is interesting. You conclude the book with I think almost poignant examples of nostalgia. Um, yeah. There's a cereal cafe. Well, of course, there, of yeah. course, of course, there is. I was like, of course, <laughs> I, 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 why didn't I think of that? It's, it's, of course, there's gonna be a cereal cafe. Um, yeah. But also the popularity of grape nuts during the pandemic. Yeah, wasn't that nuts? Mm-hmm. Great speaking, grape nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so there was in in addition to the toilet paper and the whatever were the things that everyone was running out of. I'm trying, it's been so long now. It hasn't been that long, but what were other things that were I don't remember. running uh, out? There was just the weirdest things that would run out. And oh yeah. Ke- I'll tell you what, kettlebells. I couldn't find any kettlebells to buy on, on Amazon. They're all out. <laughs> like, love or money. Yeah. <laughs> no, you could not. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so this was, this was one of those. And for some strange reason, this cereal that everyone mocks and it's like, this tastes like, you know, gravel or, you know, the various things you think to say about grape nuts. And again, this is said with love. I think grape nuts are fine. And, and, um, but they, you couldn't find them for love or money. And there was a black market for grape nuts and you had to go to eBay and buy them. They were just gone in the cereals, in the, in the stores. And, um, so in part that was because, uh, post company was closing their factories for safety's sake. And, you know, there were just, there wasn't as much, um, being made to keep. And so there that was one problem was that the supply chain was having a problem on the one side. But then of course there was the run on breakfast cereal on the other side, because everyone started working at home. No one was traveling anymore. So no one was going to Starbucks and grabbing their coffee and, you know, pastry or something on the way to work. They just started making breakfast cereal again. And breakfast cereal just had a, in general, Mm -hmm. had a huge boom at the moment because people just, and they didn't have to get up and commute for as long anymore. So you had time to sit at the table for a little while before you had to sit at the, (laughs) before your eight hours of zoom meetings. (laughs) And so, um, but for some reason, the grape nuts was the one that huh. you absolutely could not find and was gone. And and I wonder, and I, thinking about it, and I didn't put this in the book, but I do wonder if to some extent that's there aren't as many versions of grape nuts. Like a cornflake, everyone has a version of a cornflake, you know, so maybe that was, you know, you could kind of distribute the the desire amongst those other kinds of cereals. And, you know, Cheerio, there are lots of different versions of Cheerios and stuff. Um, but uh, But yeah, and so... Um, they actually, the company actually, if you could find, you know, if you could prove with receipts or something that you had spent this much money on your cereal, they would reimburse you. They sent out boxes of cereal to people that had a fun story about how they tried to acquire grape nuts. And they posted it all over their website that, you know, here's what we're doing for you now. And we appreciate that you love us so much. We love you right back. Um, but yeah, it's, it, 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 speaking of the nostalgia, it really does always go back to like the kind of core four, um, you know, the, the Cheerios flakes you know fr- you know corn flakes it it always goes back to those ones you don't you know fruit loops is a very colorful cereal but that's not the one that like people are going to rush back to when when times are tough <laughs> they might remember what it tastes like and they, they, <laughs> they, the I, it, it, this, it's kind of that which is that's a beautiful segue into what i wanted to conclude with you you point out how for Quite some time now. Certainly, when I was when I was a freshman and was confronted by a long row of cereal dispensers of all the mm-hmm. sugary goodness I had yeah. been denied up until that yeah, moment, right. and right. I tried yeah, them I all and all. found them disgusting, <laughs> like Fruit Loops. Yeah. 
Um, not Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch is, you know, talk about scientific innovations. How do you keep something in milk that doesn't actually get soggy? That that was yeah, right. poly, <laughs> polystyrene, I guess. It's a tremendous innovation. And I, I do Didn't love think it. Think about it too hard. Yeah. Uh, but but the uh but but hooking hooking the rising generation on breakfast cereals yeah. means that eventually the quest for convenience, the quest for nostalgia, breakfast cereals not just for breakfast anymore. Because no. of course breakfast is Breakfast is, is as I, I suspect, I, I don't know the, the findings on this, but people rarely eat it. Uh, if they, they less and less. less There's and a lot less. of skipping of it now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've got bars now, breakfast cereal yeah, bars. Yeah. Uh, you grab a bar, you have a coffee, that's breakfast. So you're, yeah. you're eating your cereal for comfort maybe at night when mm-hmm. before you go to bed or something like that. This is, this is, this is what breakfast cereal is for, and it's, it's to remind you what breakfast used to be like. Right, right, right. Built-in nostalgia. And, of course, the all the various, the big five breakfast cereal companies have worked very, very hard that we think that yeah. <laughs> they, um, when they started losing market shares for breakfast, they couldn't, you know, so then they came back and were like, all right, how do we, what do we do now? Uh, and people were, so the food that was so convenient, you know, a kid can't cook porridge because hot stoves and all that kind of stuff. But a kid, a quite small child can pour milk and pour cereal, you know, so it was the most convenient food, um, especially for busy parents and and with both parents working and all of those kinds of things. Um, But then what happens when you need something even more convenient? So yes, you have the granola bars that you can grab in this, you know, be eating in the car on your way or you just skip breakfast. Um, so how do you, so they all make a granola bar now. That's one way they are trying to keep that market share is they've all invested in the granola bar, muesli bar, however, you know, across the world, um, market. They're desperately trying to get into Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, because that, you know, billions of people live there. And if they can buy breakfast cereal, that will save every food company's bacon. Which, which, Um, which as you point out, will, could lead a very exciting innovation, savory breakfast cereal. Right, right. Because this is the main trick for that part of the world is that they largely eat savory foods for breakfast. They find the this sugary, sweet yeah. kind of a breakfast food just weird. This is a, so. this related very much to. I mean, now we're going. On, I'm going really off piece, but uh, we're going the <laughs> uh, the Dunkin' Donuts has been trying to get into India for the last five or six years, and it's partly uh, no stereotypes. A lot of Indian families have made a great deal of money on Dunkin' Donuts in the United States because of the franchising restrictions. Oh, sure, restri- sure. Franchising the way that you can buy a franchise in Dunkin' Donuts. And they, then they networks, it's always networks for immigrants, and then they expand and they want to take Dunkin' Donuts back to India. And the people in India are like, well, no one eats donuts for breakfast. That's crazy. Donuts are for yeah. dessert. Donuts, these are, you know, savory treats are for later in the day. So they had to yeah. re- completely reconceptualize the entire model of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, when, yeah. you, when you go to India, it's the same for breakfast cereal in Vietnam. Right? <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. And it's just so funny that, it you know, so and, and to some extent they are doing it. So to some extent they're just like, well, if we just advertise it a lot, they'll just say, yeah, we'll switch all of our ways and our culture and do it your way. <laughs> So to some extent they're trying that. And to some extent they're like, well, what if we add, you know, this kind of a flavor? Or if we do something more like this, maybe that'll be a little bit more, um, you know, it'll be less of a, of a strange if we add like um, taro or something, you know, so if, if a flavor that you're familiar with at least. And so then, then that might help. Um, but so, yeah, so opening up to new markets, of course, is one of the big things they're trying. 
and then opening it up as fourth meal. Um, and the fact that you don't just have to eat breakfast cereal for breakfast anymore. Uh, and one of the ways, one of the main ways we do that is through the college dorm lived experience of just, and if you think about it, and we can all remember this, um, the, the, the cereal dispensers don't get taken away at the end of the mealtime, right? So you have those very structured mealtimes where they have the different kinds of foods, but then you can just kind of always enter the, the cafeteria and grab cereal and the, the milk, the big industrial milk dispenser thing as well. Um, and so if you were in class when the official meals were, or you were doing other work or something like that, so you missed the actual official mealtime, you can just always make up for it with, cere with specifically cereal. Uh, and it's great for it is great for dinner. It's great for lunch. I talk to people more and more, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't really eat it for breakfast, but I have it as like a snack at such and such time, or so, you know." And it's just a great like while you're watching TV in the evening kind of a snack. Yeah. Well, my guest today has been Catherine Cornell Dolan. She's the author of Breakfast Cereal: A Global History. I should say that it's a it's a, a nice short book, and it's lavishly and attractively illustrated by a Reaction Press, Reaction Books. Casey, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 